Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Throughout the summer, you've heard us talk about some of the ways climate change is shaking the very foundations of our natural world and the way we live. We're, we're literally living through a redistribution of life on Earth. It's, uh, it's very profound kinds of transformations that we have to go through in a very short amount of time. It is a really vital moment, and the reason is that we are basically out of time. Today, we look at something else that holds out the promise of rebuilding at least part of those foundations. And for many, it tackles the hottest topic, so to speak, the number one thing that needs to change and change now, eliminating the use of fossil fuels. Nearly two-thirds of Canada's energy comes from them. And burning oil, coal and natural gas only boosts the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, leading to runaway climate change. So sure, the answer is to stop that. In other words, decarbonize. And yes, that's a word I checked. But then the question is, what do you use for power instead? Well, what's old has become new again, as Ottawa and several of the provinces hawk hydrogen as a potential hero in the campaign to get rid of carbon. It's a solution that might give you the experience of deja vu. This is the solution to high gasoline prices, global warming, you name it. Clean, efficient hydrogen, and they say it's supposed to be commercially viable in five or ten years. As we'll hear in this half hour in 2020, hydrogen is making a comeback. We're going to start on the front lines of the efforts to decarbonize the phase-out of coal-fired generating stations, which Canada has committed to do by 2030. Only a small slice of electricity in Canada comes from coal, but it has an outsized effect on emissions. It's responsible for more than three-quarters of all greenhouse gases from electricity generation. The coal industry also employs thousands of workers, many with good, high-paying jobs. And we've reached one now. Don Gray has been a coal miner for 33 years, and he joins me from Darwell, Alberta, not far from the Highvale coal mine where he works. Hello. Hello there. First, can you tell me about the history of your work in, in coal mining, How what you've been doing all these years, and whether it's a career for you? Yes, it's uh, it's been a, a good career for me. I actually uh, finished high school, and then I was able to get on the Whitewood coal mine when I first graduated from school. And lucky enough that I've had a well-paying job for uh, 33 years with no interruptions. Just as a, as a working man with this good-paying job, what kind of life have you been able to build for yourself and your family? It's been great. We've been able to travel and uh, afford to send the kids to school. And uh, they only had to have one person working in the family. So the kids had a mother at home until we were old enough. Now your kids, how many do you have? I have two. One, uh, one's a boy, he's older, and my daughter's a little younger, okay. 21 and 19. Were they going to, in your mind, participate in the same kind of job? Actually, they both had looked very close at it until I found out that coal was uh, not going to be used and burnt anymore. So, I understand your son even got so far as to put in an application. 
Yes, it's too late. By then, the, the, we were starting to shut down. Yeah, tell me about that. What, what what happened? When was it clear that neither your son nor your daughter was going to be working in so-called family business? Well, when the uh, announcements came out from the government that they were going to shut down coal, raise the uh, tax on it, two years ago, it all come across the board that they were going to go to gas and we were off of coal. So it's just a matter of them turning their turbines from coal to gas right now. So what do you plan to do? My wife has now uh, got a position at a store and uh, maybe I'll just continue farming. How does that plan feel to you? Well, that uh, I'm going to be a little short on my retirement, but I'll make do. How short? Well, about uh, nine years. <laughs> hopefully, and hopefully I uh, have the seniority to hold on to uh, do the uh, reclamation work at the mine. And that'll take me to retirement. But that's, you can never tell. So you're nine years short of your retirement. Can you talk a little bit about how disheartening that is for you and your family? If I wasn't going to be able to finish my career out here, I would have been looking for something different, went to school. I was in enrolled in Nate for power engineering, but this job came along. And when you look at the numbers, it's like, wow, I can make more money doing this than going to school and doing all this other stuff. And I live at home and in the area where my family is and kept the family together and farming and it just worked. And now my opportunity to go back at 51 and find a job when you've got young people vying for those same jobs is zero to none, I would imagine. Yeah. You thought you were living the dream. Yeah. Yeah. The business was doing fine. They were making lots of money. They had contracts, everything's good. But the government says, okay, now we're going to put a tax on this coal that makes it so expensive that you're not going to be able to make money. So the company says, well, great, I guess we're shutting down. That's the way that goes. The government did it, not business. Right. And I get the part about wanting to save the environment, but with 36 million people in this country, when you look abroad and you see China, I don't know, they the six coal mines a, a month, they put on a thousand a year coal mines, they're burning coal. Germany goes back to coal. You look around the world, it's hard to think that we're going to save the world with a couple of coal plants in Canada. I'm wondering what you think of this plan to phase out coal for electricity generation. I don't think it's a, a very good idea at the moment. I don't think we have the capacity to keep up with our province's demand. We're, we're relying on states and other provinces to run this province. I'm not sure about that yet. Do you understand more, though, the idea that, of the need to do this to tackle climate change? For sure. But phasing out as quickly as this is coming, the phase out was to 2030. And now with the tax being so high on the coal, the company is not making money at it. So the government has forced their hand quicker than it could have. The knee-jerk reaction, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Instead of a slow phase out and people being able to retire and shut it down in a, in a slower manner. How do you reconcile the stated need to tackle climate change with the need for people like you to have jobs in, in the community? Being a farmer and a steward of the land, it is pertinent to take care of our environment. The coal industry has uh, worked hard to get their emissions down and, and things like this. So uh, one of our generating plants that are here, the coal burns with less pollution than the gas does. The technology is there, just the will to, to drive it forward and make this happen. We need the power. We This province doesn't have hydro. The wind power isn't uh, going to make us go. The wind doesn't always blow. Sun doesn't always shine. But you can always burn coal to make power.
I can hear the frustration in your voice. Yeah. The, the area that I live in is going to take a really big hit in the next couple of years. And I guess the kids are going to have to leave. Your kids. Yes, they, they're, they're not going to be able to support themselves here uh, with a good paying job. There's always jobs. One where you get a pension and your benefits, it's going to be tough. I just want to ask, you're in the first wave of workers affected by Canada's efforts to reduce emissions. And I'm wondering what advice you have for the people who come next. The advice I give them is uh, lobby your, your government. They've actually helped us out tremendously in getting the uh, workers re-educated and, and up on their feet again. As far as unemployment that runs a little longer, money to go back to school, money for moving across Canada if you need to, that sort of thing. Would you say don't panic? Yeah, don't panic. The, the sun always comes up, and that's me too. The sun will rise tomorrow, and I'll find a, find a job like everybody else does. I need one. What equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> Don, I, I wish you good luck in the, in the months and the, and the years to come, and thank you for talking to me. And thanks for reaching out to me. Uh, take care. Don Gray is a coal miner at the Highvale Mine near Edmonton. Coal is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, when it comes to decarbonization. More than 70% of the energy consumed in Canada right now comes from fossil fuels. So getting to net zero emissions by 2050 means major changes to how we live, work, and move around. Sarah Birch has thought a lot about what that could look like. She's an associate professor at the University of Waterloo and Canada Research Chair in Sustainability, Governance, and Innovation there. Hello. Hi there. How urgent is the need to decarbonize Canada's economy if we're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050? Well, you know, the urgency is really increasing with every passing day, every passing year. We're starting to see what the climate change impacts that, um, you know, Canada can expect are actually looking like even now. And as we scroll forward into the future, um, it's really becoming clear that it's going to be incredibly costly and incredibly dangerous to do nothing. So, so the, the challenge is urgent. And unfortunately, you know, our emissions in Canada are heading in the wrong direction. So we have a, a big project in front of us. Now, I know there are lots of scenarios and there's lots of uncertainties, but could you try to paint a picture for us of what that could look like, net zero by 2050? Um, the vision that I hold for a, a low carbon 2050 um, is reliant on, on renewable energy to power our homes, to heat our homes, um, is reliant on um, denser, more walkable, um, more livable communities um, with more vibrant urban nature. And I, I do have to say that I think our recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic presents one of these opportunities where we really can ensure that our recovery is equitable, is just, and, and is low carbon. I'm curious to know whether there's any place in Canada or in the world that is doing this now that we, that we can look to as a model. So I think this is why this moment is perhaps different from the way the climate change conversation unfolded 10, 15, 20 years ago. We do have examples of perhaps not nationwide, but really remarkable um, communities who are pursuing this kind of more holistic vision of sustainability, where we try and enhance biodiversity, we try and um, improve access to affordable housing, we try and improve walkability and access to active transportation as well. So 
you know, I look to cities like um, like Malmo in Sweden, uh, really great initiatives in uh, throughout the Netherlands. Um, there's, you know, beautiful sort of deep sustainability efforts taking place in Germany and, and all around the world that we can learn from. Now, one of your, your papers talks about carbon being woven through the Canadian economy, identity and way of life. And we are so dependent on those fossil fuels now. Do they play a role in a net zero future? And what would it be? Well, you know, it's clear that a large portion of the of the Canadian wealth that we have all um, that well, many of us have benefited from, certainly not all, um, is rooted in that uh, natural resource based economy. So we have um, we have a lot of things to give fossil fuels. They've they've gotten us a long way, but in my view, they're they're sort of not the the core of our future prosperity and well being. Um, we need those those fuels to help us, ironically, transition away from them. But um, as we're seeing with the, the possibility of producing hydrogen through low carbon um, electricity, we we can use those resources to help us make deeper changes to to our energy uh, production and consumption. So they they will play a role for for the foreseeable future then. They will play a role. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's no scenario in which we can strip our, our system of, of fossil fuels within a decade or less. Now, and this is why carbon negative technologies, you know, the, those technologies that actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere um, and store it uh, are an important part of the equation. But it's clear that we're not moving fast enough to, to decarbonize our transportation system, to decarbonize our, our heating, and, and uh, of course, uh, reduce the, the greenhouse gas footprint of our oil and gas sector. Now, there's lots of effort toward electrifying a lot of what fossil fuels do now, but are there still areas that we need to decarbonize where electricity just doesn't work? Well, it depends on the on the um, sort of technological pathway that we use and also the way we decide to, to structure our cities. So it's easier to electrify personal transport. You know, we all know about the, the Teslas and the other, you know, electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids. So that's simpler. It's more difficult to decarbonize long-haul heavy transport, uh, chemicals, steel, iron industries. So this is where hydrogen offers... Um, a more promising pathway to decarbonize uh, those sectors. But what I'm really interested in is, uh, you know, the way we build our cities. We've, we've always in Canada had the benefit of these, you know, vast expanses of land. And so we tend to sprawl. Our, our cities cover um, a lot of space requiring us to drive, you know, from, from work to recreation, to home, uh, to shopping. And so we've embedded a demand for fossil fuels in the fabric of our communities. And that is a really deep shift that has to happen to sort of wean us off uh, fossil fuels and push us towards denser, uh, more walkable, um, healthier communities. Right. But that, but that involves not even using electricity for personal vehicles, that, that you're talking about a reshaping of the cities entirely in that in that idea. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Electrification is not the solution to everything. Um, it is one um, really important uh, step away from fossil fuels. But if we all move to individually owned and operated electric vehicles, that wouldn't change the structure of our cities at all. Um, we would still be producing large quantities of those vehicles, which of course require resources to do. And we would still be able to have these expansive cities where we spend a lot of time in our now electric vehicles. So I think there are better 
um, and healthier and more exciting ways to build our communities than that. Well, let, let's talk some more about hydrogen because Canada is now working on a national hydrogen strategy and we're seeing renewed interest in clean hydrogen around the world. Now, you've written in the past that there haven't been what you call economically viable pathways to use that green hydrogen. Do you think that's changed? It is It is shifting. So there's there's nothing new about you know, what we call electrolytic hydrogen. Um, so if we produce hydrogen using fossil fuels, then that, of course, is a high carbon way to produce hydrogen. If we produce hydrogen using renewable energy, um, like solar power, it's an extremely low carbon way to produce hydrogen. But it is high cost if that solar power is high cost to produce. But we've been seeing the dramatic reductions in the cost of, of utility scale, so large scale solar production, that really offers this quite promising opportunity to produce uh, hydrogen in a more cost-effective way. So it's, it's available to be scaled up, in other words. Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of opportunities there. And as, as I said, using hydrogen um, as a way to decarbonize our th- those especially tricky sectors like long-haul heavy transport um, is a really important part of the equation. Now, one question that, that Don Gray, a coal miner in Alberta, brought up with us is that Canada is relatively small on the world scale um, when it comes to um, carbon uh, production from, from things like coal mines. And so he says, why does it matter what we do here? What's your response to that? You know, I hear this a lot, that, that Canada isn't an important source of greenhouse gas emissions, that we're not an important player globally. And I think that this is misled, uh, you know, in a couple of ways. Of course, the most obvious way is that our per capita emissions are always among the highest in the world. So from an equity standpoint, in terms of what responsibility we as Canadians have to contribute to decarbonization, I think the case is pretty compelling that we need to be among the first to act to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So per capita, we are absolutely near the top. We also actually do contribute a lot in total. We're in the top 10 total emitters globally. So despite being relatively small in size population-wise, we're a major contributor. Um, And I would also say that if we sort of let this ship sail towards decarbonization without us, we're losing out. We're losing out on opportunities to um, be a part of that low-carbon innovation to lead the transition rather than just follow it and to sort of help build a Canadian vision for what a new kind of prosperity might look like and what a sustainable future could look like here. So often we've heard about a climate target to reduce emissions, the Kyoto Accord, then Copenhagen, and then Paris, and then we just blow past the targets. I'm wondering if you have hope that this time will be different, that we could actually meet these goals set for 2030 or 2050. Uh, so I'm of two minds on on whether or not this time will be different. On the one hand, we know that emissions have to peak almost immediately, go down by you know 30 to 45 percent by 2030, and then go to net zero by 2050 in order to constrain a global temperature rise to less than two degrees. So the the challenge is monumental there, and. Canadian emissions are projected to only go down by about 19% uh, before 2030 rather than the 30% that we have committed to. So we're not on track to meeting our own targets to reduce emissions by by 2030 and ultimately 2050. And we've seen this um, many times in the past. The reasons that I find to be hopeful are, you know, it's hard to remember in this all COVID, all the time uh, world that we live in, but 
prior to this global pandemic, you know, we were riding the wave of one of the most active, vocal um, times on, on climate change um, activism that we've ever seen. So there has been a, a global social movement on climate change that is remarkable and, in my view, is different from what we've seen in the past. So that has raised the general level of awareness about how urgent the challenge is and what opportunities we have to act. Um, so that sets this time apart. I also think now we have those examples of success in communities around the world to learn from, which we might not have had 20 years ago. So there's sort of no excuse. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We already have the technologies available to us. We have the examples of success that we can uh, build on and, and transfer and scale up. Uh, so the ingredients are all there. It's just, you know, the, the match continues to, you know, need to be lit to fire up the political will to move move quicker. Is that what, so what needs to change most immediately to get Canada closer to reaching that goal? Is it the political will or, or what is the one thing that you'd like to see happen sooner rather than later? Well, my answer to anyone who asks what they can do, uh, what's the, the number one thing they should do um, to, to deal with climate change as an individual, and my answer to individuals is always vote. Uh, because I think that this is a collective action problem. This isn't about so much individual behavior changes. I think that's been sort of an unfortunate message that has been quite distracting over the last 10 or 15 years. The way our cities are designed, the efficiency standards of our vehicles, um, how we move away from natural gas in our heating, for instance, and towards electricity, those aren't decisions that you and I can make. So I think that this is very much a, a collective challenge that we need to continue to push ahead. And I think one of the ingredients that we have been missing is a vision of what Canada can look like in 2050 and a positive vision at that. We hear a lot about the very real potential impacts of climate change and the sort of scary side of it, which is not something we can ignore. But what I think inspires people to act is a vision of how their communities, their lives, their jobs, their health can be better in a low-carbon, sustainable, resilient way. Sarah Birch, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Sarah Birch is an associate professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Management at the University of Waterloo. She also holds the Canada Research Chair in Sustainability, Governance and Innovation. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things <laughs> aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Cutting emissions drastically isn't just about loss. There are actually opportunities. And one that seems to be getting attention around the world is hydrogen. Europe plans to invest in it as part of its COVID recovery stimulus package. Germany committed billions this summer following leads from Japan and South Korea. And Canada is set to release a national hydrogen strategy this fall. But you may remember hearing about hydrogen as the fuel of the future before. Our producer Lisa Johnson does. It was a sunny day in 2009, near what we now know was the height of hydrogen hype. 
Crowds had gathered on the Vancouver waterfront to welcome a fleet of hydrogen cars that had driven from California to show off the technology. Gordon Campbell, then Premier of BC, waved them to the finish line. We are at the front edge of what will be an entire change in automotive technology and energy technologies. But even then, 11 years ago, the TV reporter covering the event was starting to sound impatient. Even though these prototypes are on the road now, how long will it take until you'll actually get to drive one? Well, the wait's not over yet. Yeah, that's me, sitting in a million-dollar car. I was just the latest in a long line of reporters who sat in hydrogen cars and talked about a technology that always seemed a few years out of reach. And they say it's supposed to be commercially viable in five or ten years. That was Terry Malewski in 2006. The promise was clear. Zero emissions when you drove, because when hydrogen reacts with oxygen in a fuel cell... Nothing comes out of the tailpipe except water. And back then, Canada and B.C. had a big promise to make it happen. Here's Rosa Marcatelli in 2004. Now they're about to spend even more on a so-called hydrogen highway. The plan was a constellation of fueling stations from Whistler to California. Started for the 2010 Olympics and finished by what then seemed like a distant, futuristic, round number of a year, 2020. So Lisa, I'm going to jump in here. We are now in that very real year of 2020. What happened? Well, Laura, some fueling stations went up for the games, but the hydrogen highway was never built. And that stuck with me because, you know, it was talked about for years. It had the backing of Arnold Schwarzenegger and it didn't happen. Whistler had a fleet of 20 hydrogen fuel cell buses for the Olympics, but they were sold off after five years. So, you know, this summer when I started hearing so much about hydrogen again, I was surprised. And it wasn't just coming from the tech circles in Vancouver, but Alberta, where there's an industrial heartland hydrogen task force at work right now. And I thought, what? Wait, is hydrogen a thing again? So you know, I had to look into it. And what did you find? Well, I have a few things, but uh, I'll boil it down to changes in policy and technology since then. So on policy, there is this push we're talking about to reach net zero by 2050, which means decarbonizing everything, including the hard stuff like heavy transport where hydrogen might help. And you know, now with the price on carbon and other regulations, the math is different than 10 or 15 years ago. So I was around during the, the hype, and I will use that word, uh, that, that came about at, at that time. That's Mark Kirby, who left the hydrogen industry for about a decade and then came back last year as CEO of the Canadian Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association. And he explains what happened to those Whistler buses. Incredible technical success. You know, they ran, they ran reliably for years. They, they ran through winter, snow and summer. But once that was done, there was no reason to continue because, yeah, it was still more expensive than, than using um, diesel or, or fossil fuels. And there was no business case to do that. Now... Costs have come down further for those vehicles, and there is those requirements in place. But, but what about the technology to actually make the hydrogen? Well, the cheapest way to make it, and how most is made now, is from fossil fuels. But that, of course, has significant emissions, so it's not a solution. The low-carbon ways, they have these colorful nicknames, blue and green hydrogen, they are coming down in cost. So blue hydrogen still uses fossil fuels like natural gas, but instead of releasing the carbon into the atmosphere, it's captured and stored. And that is being done on a small scale right now. And it's getting a lot of interest in places like Alberta, Saskatchewan that have fossil fuel resources. And then there's the green hydrogen, which uses renewable energy like solar or wind power to split water. Sarah Birch mentioned that. And that's basically zero emission. 
I didn't quite understand why you'd bother doing that. Like if you just have the electricity, why not just use that? But I talked to David Lazell, who studies sustainable energy at the University of Calgary, and he says hydrogen could help solve the problem of how do you store energy like wind or solar for when you need it. Electricity doesn't store very well. If you make too much wind and solar now, you end up having trouble using it if it's, uh, if it's not made at the right time of day when there's demand. Uh, so putting it into hydrogen is an opportunity. But I still have to notice something, Lisa. All this is still about the future, and I'm wondering if hydrogen technology is anywhere on the ground in Canada right now. It is. Um, you can buy a hydrogen car now. It'll cost you about $70,000 before incentives, which is cheap, obviously, but it's not a million-dollar prototype anymore. And there are pilot projects happening now for heavy trucking, for home heating. And there are three hydrogen fueling stations subsidized by industry and government that are open to the public, all near Vancouver at this point. So, yes, it is being deployed on the ground in Canada now. But you know, like we talked about, we've seen projects before that make a splash and then disappear. So, you know, all this will depend how those efforts go. And Laura, in 2030, you and I can dig this out of the CBC <laughs> archives and we will... See what happens. And see whether we are driving hydrogen cars ourselves. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Lisa Johnson is a producer with What on Earth. Now that's one technology that might play a role in a zero emission future. But how can policymakers decide what's the safe bet with limited time and money? My next guest argues the best move is setting the rules, not choosing the winner. Professor Mark Jackard is director of the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University and the author of the recent book, The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success. Hello. Hello. I know you've seen enthusiasm come and go for hydrogen over the years. I'm wondering what you make of the attention it's getting now. You're right to say that. Um, you know, I think of... Um a couple of reasons why it might be happening again right now. One of them is, uh, I'll call bad news and one good news. The bad news is that there is a tendency for various people to, who are really kind of indifferent about how urgent it is to reduce emissions and for them to say, you know, here's the exact right solution. It's hydrogen, but in fact, you need to make major investments in how to produce it and infrastructure to deliver it and yet we already have systems in place to deliver liquid fuels like biodiesel so that is something that actually makes us go slower by focusing on that particular option for particular uses and needs that's the sort of the bad news side the good news side is that we need to give hope to people who live in regions that are really well endowed with fossil fuels like alberta and saskatchewan because they can be part of, believe it or not, a decarbonized, a climate-preserving future. Um, you can take those uh, forms of energy, you can convert them into hydrogen or electricity, and use that, you know, again, in, in, in industry, in transportation, in buildings, and having zero emissions from that. But of course, in the process, you, when you make the hydrogen or electricity, you have to capture all the carbon probably a CO2, and then bury it underground. And I think that in Canada, we do want to be pursuing some of this, uh, especially in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan, to say, can we help you so that you can be part of that future? 
And I think that's very important for another reason, which is that humans are highly biased. You, me, everyone, people in Alberta, and we tend to be biased to towards the things that are in our self-interest. And there's nothing, you know, no easier way to convince people to be against your efforts in climate or even to not even believe the climate science than to say, uh, in order for us to succeed with this climate threat, we need to annihilate your economy and your resource base. So hydrogen in that sense makes for a nice compromise in Canada, in Poland, in China, parts around the world, and that's where one might see it being pushed. But but it, does it does it explain does that explain why there are certain parts of the country who are fossil fuel rich, and you just talked about them, that seem to be so keen on hydrogen now? Does that explain it? Uh, yeah, and when I when I wrote that book fifteen years ago. Um, I, it was very popular in Alberta and I gave all, you know, I was invited continuously to give public talks by the fossil fuel industry uh, and by the government and by the other organiza industry organizations. But that was a time, again, when we thought we were about to move very quickly on climate. Um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was acting quickly. Republicans in the U.S., Mitt Romney, uh, John McCain in their, you know, various positions. So that was a time. And then when it was obvious that we weren't going to act on climate globally yet again, you know, the failure of Kyoto, um, the global financial crisis, then everybody just slid right back into, oh, let's just expand oil sands. Let's keep uh, mining coal to make electricity. So that's why I say there's a bit of a cyclical aspect to this. And when you Again, when those people in those regions feel threatened, then they, of course, can get interested in something like hydrogen that puts value to their resources, even in a climate-constrained world. The challenge of reaching net zero by 2050 is big. We all know that. But what kind of policy changes do you think could steer us in that direction? Um, we know that experts know, that government officials know, and industry knows, and environmental advocates know you have to put a price on carbon so that, you know, so because fossil fuels are wonderful, except for destroying the planet. So you've got to have the price of gasoline rising, natural gas for heating homes, or you have to put in tech, uh, regulations that say, oh, we're, we're going to have zero emission vehicles. And pretty soon you can't sell a gasoline vehicle like the policy that California, Quebec and British Columbia have or policies that say we're gonna phase out coal plants like we now have Alberta started and now we have it across the country, or policies that say you can't use fossil fuel natural gas in a home for heating. Um, it's going to have to phase to be biomethane, uh, which is just like natural gas, but made from biological sources. And that's the policy that British Columbia is putting in place right now. You have to have those regulations or pricing. We've always known it, we still know it. Why not design a system, though, and, and choose which technologies to invest in based on that? Very good question, because governments, you know, don't know the future. And I, I can give you examples. Just think about hydrogen for large trucking. Maybe in some cases, large trucks will use hydrogen. In some cases, they might use compressed natural gas, again, made from biological sources, maybe even electricity in these um, these lines, like trolley lines that are, that are getting electricity or large batteries. Um, there, there are or biodiesel, like th there are a lot of options out there. And what I can tell you is that you don't know, I don't know, 
and government doesn't know which one of these will start to get the right innovations, be attractive for certain other reasons, and end up emerging. So as much as possible, we try to use those pricing or flexible regulations like I described, which do not pick winners. How on track do you think Canada is to meet its 2030 commitment, let alone net zero by 2050? Canada is not exactly on track with the policy slate it has. But in fairness, it has implemented the exact right policies. That's the coal plant phase out, um, the rising carbon price, and the clean fuel standard, and then getting their stringencies a little tighter. They're still not tightening the stringency of things like their clean fuel regulation fast enough for me, and I'm pushing on that, um, but at least we're having that conversation and policies are coming into place. Just a, the biggest example is the rising federal carbon price. That takes a lot of guts and that takes a lot of sincerity. But I'm sure some listeners are, are listening to you right now and thinking what this government bought a pipeline. How does that square with sincerity on the climate? I'm really glad you asked that. And this relates to the early part of our conversation that Alberta and Saskatchewan, among others, Newfoundland, have interests in their fossil fuel endowment. And so how do you speak to those people? And, you know, one of them is to sort of say, what do they, you know, what are the things we can give them? What I can say is that if we do our policies right and we phase out the use of gasoline and diesel in Canada, like the Scandinavians are and the Californians and now other countries, even the Chinese, then we'll be part of a global movement. And things like oil pipelines won't matter a lot. We might have built it. Maybe it'll be owned half by First Nations uh, people and there'll be some benefits from it. And maybe one day we'll convert that pipeline uh, into a hydrogen pipeline or into a biofuels pipeline. Um, there are all sorts of possibilities. We're still going to move energy around. Um, but right now, a government had to, to stay, to tell the different regions of Canada uh, you matter to us and we understand you have your own views. Maybe they're biased somewhat uh, and we have to respect that. So I understand why a government might make compromises like that that look contradictory um, as part of staying in power and being climate sincere and preventing climate insincere parties from getting into government. And to be honest, having a 10 year lost decade like we had under the Harper Canadian government. I, I just want to come back to individuals. We do know our listeners want to hear more about what they can do to decarbonize. What's your advice? That all of this is way simpler than people tell you. We are going to have to switch to zero emission vehicles and people will use cars. It's within reach of everyone right now, even though they might say they're expensive. In British Columbia, at least, it's moving very quickly. COVID has slowed it a little bit, um, but we and we need policies to make that to, to advance that, but any person can be doing that now. There's even a second a market for secondhand electric vehicles, and I've been looking at that. The second thing is your house, your, your you know whether it's you dealing with a landlord, so that's more difficult. But if you are a homeowner, if you're in a townhouse or a condo, you're probably already zero emission. You could very well be that the heating system in your building, heating and cooling even, is electric. And if you're, and in Canada, we're moving to where our electricity is almost zero emission because of the coal phase out. So that's already good news. And then if you're in an individual house like mine, you're converting it from a natural gas furnace 
uh, to a heat pump. And I'm just in the process of doing that. And many people I know have done that. And that's it. So you need governments that put in policies so that electricity is clean, that put in policies so we can have electric vehicles and recharge them. But even in the even where we are right now, today, anywhere in Canada, the listeners to this show can have an electric vehicle within the next year or two uh, and, and should be very focused on that. And their own household emissions will plummet. Mark Jackard, thank you. You're very welcome. I really appreciate doing this. Mark Jackard is Professor of Sustainable Energy at Simon Fraser University's School of Resource and Environmental Management and the author of The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success. Now, we'd love to hear what you think of Canada's effort to decarbonize. Tweet us at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch, CBC, or you can email us earth at cbc.ca. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Emily Rundell Watson, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.